Francesco Cesarini founded Erlang Solutions in 1999 with a mission to help companies adopt Erlang. In this interview, I speak with Francesco and Gabor Ole from Erlang Solutions. We discuss the Erlang language, its ecosystem, and features like concurrency, resilience, and scalability that motivate adoption. We use Java and the Java Virtual Machine as a comparison point for Erlang and its virtual machine, the Beam. Lastly, we explore where Erlang fits best in contemporary software engineering projects. Francesco and Gabor, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having us. So you're both with Erlang Solutions. I know Erlang as a language, and I assume there's a bit more to it. Can you give listeners a just general overview of what's going on with Erlang? Well, yeah, I kind of founded Erlang Solutions you know, back in 1999 as with a mission of kind of helping companies with the adoption of Erlang and other kind of similar technologies. And you know, we've today expanded to uh, offices all over the world and probably around 120 employees. And what makes Erlang special? Yeah, so Erlang as an ecosystem is quite unique in, in the market nowadays. Some programming languages are catching up to some of the features, but in my opinion, what makes Erlang special is the runtime, because it comes with some really interesting features. For example, a preemptive scheduler that lets uh, software time systems implementation the Erlang VM, uh, which we call the Beam, uh, because it doesn't just run Erlang, but other programming languages. It has some unique features that enables uh, software time systems to be implemented quite easily, has a world-class scheduler and uh, some other really nice features. So if you think of it, I think the Erlang ecosystem consists of three things. One is all of the programming languages which run in this ecosystem. And you know, they all display very similar properties, which you know, come from Erlang, you know, they'll focus on concurrency, resilience, and scalability. And I think today, uh, there are about 35 languages in, in the ecosystem, from your regular programming languages such as Erlang and Elixir or LFE, which is Lisp-flavored Erlang, they've actually taken Lisp to the Beep and Luerl, all the way to languages used for uh, smart contracts with cryptocurrencies. The second item, you know, I think which creates this ecosystem, as you know, Gabor was saying, is uh, the Beam virtual machine itself. So highly optimized for your know, kind of concurrency, scaling on multi-core and has built-in distributions. The only VM I'm aware of, I think, which is kind of used in anger with built-in distribution. And this allows your know, different VMs to be uh, transparently clustered together. So, you know, Orchestration was something we were doing back in the 90s, adding and removing you know, VMs to the cluster during runtime. You know, fast forwarding to today, I think you know, the main, you know, there's a whole team at Ericsson which is maintaining Erlang and the Beam. And I think a lot of the effort they're putting in is on improving the virtual machine for your know, modern day architectures and applications. So they just recently added the JIT compiler, which has huge performance gains. You know, they're focusing on multi-core optimizations and your kind of large-scale concurrency. So, you know, that's where the preemptive scheduler, for example, comes in. And the result is, you know, when we started, you could have maybe 20,000 processes running in the VM. You know, today, you know, we're talking about millions of processes which kind of all run in parallel. The third kind of pillar in the ecosystem is something we call OTP. I don't know, Gabor, maybe you want to mention something about it. 
Erlang doesn't just come as a programming language or the whole ecosystem, but comes with some design philosophies that enable us to write these highly concurrent systems. Back in the old days and uh, even uh, modern languages, you have locks and mutexes to manage concurrent or parallel runtimes. And that's not easy because the programmer, when uh, writes the business logic, also needs to think about what to do about the data structures, what can interfere with uh, that business logic. In Erlang, you don't have that. But to build that kind of application, you need some common understanding how to build that. And Erlang comes with one of these standard libraries. It's called OTP. It comes from the telecom uh, background, but nowadays it's just a standard uh, set of building blocks that you can use without thinking about how in the background it solves that uh, difficult problem of uh, synchronization. You mentioned the word telecom, and I think you know, people are going to start yawning and jumping out the windows. But <laughs> if you yes. go back, you know, how fun is that? But yeah, if you go back to kind of the late 80s, early 90s, the only systems which really had to scale and could never fail were telecom systems. And when the computer science lab set about you know, to figure out how to program and how to develop, not even program, but how to develop the next generation of telecom switches, the solution they came up with was Erlang. So they set out to solve the problem of scalability and reliability. The solution happened to be a programming language. But you know, soon after, you know, why are we speaking 25 years on? It's because the internet came about. And now today, pretty much any system connected to the internet has to be not only scalable, but also resilient. And that's why we're speaking. I think the properties which they came up with you know, back then are just as relevant, in, if not even more relevant today. So I absolutely understand why concurrency would be vital to telecom. And, you know, it, it worked well, right? Very rarely do you hear anyone get an error on their telephone system that isn't because they went into a tunnel or something. It's pretty reliable. Why do those values translate well to other domains and other areas? It's a very, very interesting topic because nowadays when we have these packetized uh, services, everybody accesses their favorite internet site uh, via HTTP. There's no tunneling, no fixed landlines. All of that is completely foreign to this world. But what we want is low latency. We don't really want a system where my request to a server interferes with somebody else's request. Also, you can't really manage a workload because, for example, if something goes on to Hacker News, then your site will explode in popularity, most probably. How your site degrades is a big question. So when we talk about this resiliency, we also want a nice, predictable failure pattern in our applications, preferably low latency when there's nothing going wrong and uh, the latency shouldn't explode, but uh, be kept manageable, uh, for example, when the load uh, gets a bit uh, higher. So, Tal, I think you mentioned concurrency. I think concurrency and scalability go hand in hand because you know a concurrency when, when when you have processes it makes the reasoning of your problems much much easier what you do is you go in and you think about a single instance of of what you're building it could be a player in a massive multiplayer online game it could be a whatsapp message it could be a you know bank transaction you're know, transferring money from one account to another and how do you scale WhatsApp? How do you scale massive multi-user online game or you know, financial switches? You scale them by creating more processes, each handling a single request. And when you're using an ecosystem where you know, you've got a virtual machine which can handle millions of these requests, 
you know, that's really where you, know, you start, start talking about scale. Now, this will come at the cost of speed. And as Gabor would say, I think what you need to make sure is that you know, when you're handling a million users, that you know, latency doesn't go out the roof. And most more often than that, it won't. It will stay you know, fairly constant. So by having the virtual machine you know, allowing you to scale out of the box, uh, you as a programmer just need to focus on the business logic and not the underlying mechanisms which you know, let your business logic run. My experience is a little bit more with Java, but I'm drawing some strong parallels to the JVM and in particular how it's matured and allowed other languages to be part of that same ecosystem. Is that a fair comparison? Very fair. I mean, Java and Erlang came about more or less at the same time. When I was at the computer science laboratory, so back in, in, in the mid-90s, you know, this was before Erlang was being used in anger in any project. And I remember someone you know, coming up and giving me the Java white paper and, oh, a virtual machine, a garbage collector, oh, you know, automated memory management. You know, I, I actually got a sense of deja vu. And, and at the time, you also had green threads. And the two languages, I think, are very similar because they're more or less you know, the same age. The big difference, I have to say, is you know, the direction in which the JVM took versus the Beam. I think the JVM focuses on parallelism. The Beam focuses on concurrency. The JVM focuses on speed. And speed, you, know, you get through shared memory, you get through threads. You know, the Beam focuses on scalability. So how do you scale your system? How do you manage your tens of thousands of users uh, or millions of users without affecting the property, the properties of the system. So, you know, th th there are differences and, you know, there are, and there are also differences, I think, in, in the types of problems where, in which you would use the JVM versus, versus the Beam. So scalability is an interesting one. That's something I've had to put a lot of thought into in various projects I've worked on. What's it like to consider scalability as a user of the Beam? So Kai, you mentioned that you, you did work with the JVM or your experience with the JVM. For example, when uh, we talk about scalability, we can talk about two orthogonal directions. One is you can scale out or you can scale up and both has its own challenges. Now in, in Erlang, you have two different approaches that you can do, but the tool set that you need to work with is exactly the same. You need to isolate your individual requests to processes and uh, let those processes spread out uh, to either many schedulers, for example, that uh, the Erlang the Beam gives you, or uh, you can spread those uh, requests out, those processes, to multiple nodes when you have clustered environment. And that uh, built-in functionality means that when you write your application, you don't really need to think about uh, concurrency as long as you find a natural a way to cut your applications into small pieces that is not a pipeline, but the individual uh, requests that are isolated, independent from each other, can just coexist and they each can progress at its own pace. For example, think about web requests. If two different people create a web request to a server, they are usually uh, not dependent on each other. They could be served by two different web server instances. In Erlang, you can run this web server inside an Erlang VM. I keep saying Erlang VM instead of the Beam. But habits die hard. 
So in the Beam, you can start your web servers as a single process that will create a separate process for each uh, uh, web request. And uh, depending on whether you have enough resources on a single machine or you have a clustered environment, you can spread these processes out to multiple machines if necessary. But when you write the application, this is what I mentioned, you write the business logic uh, without caring about this. This is the underlying framework that takes care uh, for you, or you use a library that, that makes it happen. So for me, scalability in Erlang is not about uh, thinking about scalability. It's more like just using Erlang and let Erlang shine. I think the best comparison here, and this is also a good comparison between the Beam and the JVM, is think of, so I live in Rome right now, I've just moved to Rome, you often go out and have pizzas. Now, how would you scale a pizzeria using Erlang? Well, what you do is you get your baker and every one baker will do one pizza. So they'll, you know, flatten out the dough, then they'll put tomato sauce on it and the fior di latte cheese, and then, you know, they'll put in all of the ingredients on top of it put it in the oven and then take it out when it when it's done. And the way you would scale that is you would get many bakers each doing one single pizza. And so you know you need you need a thousand pizzas, you have a thousand bakers all doing them. Versus you know Java, what you would do is you would have one person maybe focusing on doing the base, the pizza base, and then you, they pass on the base to someone else who puts tomato sauce on it. Then you know, they pass it on to another person who puts the cheese on it. Then they pass it on to a fourth person who puts all the ingredients on it and into the oven. So obviously, you're know, doing it the Java route. You know that's usually what we call parallelism. It, the parallel route. It's the fastest way of doing a pizza because you know, you're going to get a pizza very very quickly. In the airline route, instead, what you do is you know, it will take longer for one person you know, to go through the whole process of doing the pizza, but you throw more people at the problem, and that's how you scale. And for those who are interested in a more uh, technical example, uh, take, for example, RabbitMQ. <laughs> I know that everybody's interested in pizza. I'm interested in pizza now. Uh, it's getting late, so I'm, uh, I'm more interested in pizza than RabbitMQ now. But the actual example is that, uh, take, for example, RabbitMQ, which is a message broker. You define queues and uh, push messages to queues, each queue can operate independently. Now, when we talk about, for example, scaling RabbitMQ, then since each queue is implemented as a single process, you can utilize that. If you, for example, run out of from the capacity of a single queue, then you can create another queue and let's say shard your messages. Or if you have uh, completely independent uh, applications who use different queues, then uh, you can just define these queues in, in a single broker and they naturally scale because the processes are run the logic independently from how many cores you have. Let's say you have a, a single core machine with two queues, then the scheduler in the beam will take care of figuring out how these two processes uh, should interlap uh, processing the messages. In this case, for example, in a single core environment, which is more and more common nowadays with the shared resources, for example, in Kubernetes, then you don't really have parallelism because uh, that single core cannot do two things at the same time. But uh, the scheduler can take one use processing uh, capacity, let it run or processing load, let it run for a set amount of time, 
and then uh, take the other one and keep repeating it. And when you write this kind of application, you don't need to worry about that because the scheduler is preemptive, which means that uh, you don't need to put, for example, predefined points where the scheduler can unschedule your program. And this is a major difference, for example, from other languages out there. And uh, to my knowledge, I'm not aware of any other major ecosystems with a preemptive scheduler is that, for example, take the Java example, you have uh, lightweight threads and, uh, or actors in the Java ecosystem. Where they depend, differ is that uh, if you use a library, which is not developed with uh, concurrency in mind, you may end up with, uh, or parallelism in mind, you may end up in a situation that that library just takes too long and skews up uh, this nice uh, latency property of your system. But if you use Erlang, you don't need to worry about that because if, let's say, calculating the length of a list takes one second, then the scheduler will stop uh, processing that uh, calculation when it runs out of allocated time and then schedules in another thing. And when that finishes or runs out of its time, then it schedules back the original task and it continues until all of them are finished, which gives a really nice property. Now, if you take that single core system with two moving components uh, to a machine that has uh, four cores, for example, then each of these processes will roughly align to a core. It's a bit more complicated than that behind the scenes, but it measures in reality uh, that way. And you can have proper parallelism and double the power. And you don't need to change the source code. You don't need to change the mindset, how you program your application, as long as you cut it down to the concurrent or the problem. Being able to set aside some of these concerns about currency and focus on my code is extremely appealing to me as a software engineer. That's kind of where I really want to spend most of my time. But if I'm exposed to this for the first time, I'm going to have some concerns because that's not a typical experience. How do people looking at the language and the whole ecosystem get comfortable with this idea initially? You really need to start thinking concurrently. And I think the point you make is the hard part in learning Erlang is not the syntax. Erlang is not the syntax, it's not the semantics. You know, those are things you know, which take a few days. The real hard part is actually unlearning all of the habits and approaches you've picked up with other programming languages. You know, and... Erlang is a language which really makes you change the way you think and reason around programming. And the reason for this is that you need to actually start thinking concurrently. And that's how you design and you model your systems. You need to start thinking of having a process for each truly concurrent activity in your system. And the question, you know, well, what takes a while to learn is what is a truly concurrent activity in the system? You know, if you think of an instant messaging session, you know, for example, a concurrent activity is not the session itself. The session itself, you know, when a user logs on, is just some state you, know, you store in an in-memory database or in a cache. The, the actual concurrent activity is a message you know, being sent. It's a message being received. It's a status update. It's a login or logging in or logging out. And so for these concurrent activities, that's where you go in and you create a new process for them. And it takes a while to start approaching the ecosystem uh, with this mindset because what most people are coming from you know, a background where you know, they're used to using threads instead of lightweight processes is they'd probably you know, create a thread, you know, they'd, they'd create a process for a user you know, when they log on, which goes in and handles all of the requests for this user. Well, I know in my experience with Java, I'm thinking of a particular incident where I wrote some code that was going to be run at really high scale and high velocity. 
and was throwing some very rare exceptions that we eventually, with the help of another engineer who had some specialized tools I didn't know, was able to figure out it was some configuration of the JVM that they were able to do some black magic and fix. Is there a similar need in Erlang? Do, if I write some Erlang code that scales up, well, I have to go find some DevOps person who knows the secret tools to help me to find rare cases. Incredibly rare. Yeah, it's it's incredibly rare. It does happen when, but you know, we're, we're talking about you know extreme scalability right here. And one of the nice features of the Beam is that it's a VM that gives you a window into how the program runs and gives you ca capabilities of taking traces and log what uh, the VM does for a specific function, for example, during the runtime. And uh, this is a feature that uh, not a lot of people uses. And uh, I wouldn't encourage doing it in production unless you really, really, really know what you are doing, especially during development or testing purposes. You can create another process inside the beam, annotates uh, what the VM is doing, and that, for example, logs into a file or gives you a snapshot of what is going on with a specific function and gives uh, a very unique uh, way to debug applications. For example, in the last 12 years of my Erlang career, I've never started a debugger because I never needed one. Some people use printfs. I don't use printfs because I don't need one. When a function is called and I don't know what it's doing, instead of printing it out, I use tracing and uh, or the tracing infrastructure that is usually shipped in every Erlang system and including Elixir because it's part of uh, the standard library. You can use that and, uh, and understand what the program is doing in a very reliable way. I mean, the, the introspection is really second to none uh, to the point, you know, Gabor was talking about tracing. What you can do is in code, you actually have running, and I've done this in code in high volume, high throughput code in production, looking for extreme edge and borderline cases, which you would never be able to reproduce in a lab, but, you know, which we were seeing happening, you know, once a month, you know, once every other month. What we did is, you know, you're able to go in and examine on variables, you know, parameters passed to local function calls and if they follow some particular, you know, if they have a particular value or you can do comparisons and simple logical operations on them. And if they trigger certain certain parameters, you, you can go in and you know, fire off a trace message. And so all of this internal introspection is done without, you know, with minimal overheads over the, you know, the traffic which is going through your system. So, you know, this way you're actually able to go in and find obscure bugs, which yeah, you would never find otherwise in a regular system. So amazing introspection and cut it out here. This is, <laughs> it almost sounds like a sales pitch. Exactly. It's one of those features that I never found anywhere. And whenever I program, for example, in Python or Java or, or basically any other language, I always feel that uh, even if I get a shell, I just like to know what is going on behind the scenes. While a debugger works very well, for example, a single-threaded program for a concurrent program, it, it's not a good solution because if you stop the execution of the program, then you might hit, uh, for example, timeouts that are triggered or or another machine that you you haven't stopped just carries on uh, operating. So you you can't really rely on spending half an hour trying to figure out what uh, individual parameters are doing. Instead, what you do is take a snapshot of what's going on without breaking the current uh, execution thread or the processes or their interactions, and then analyze it as a post-mortem of the fact and uh, see what's going on. 
Well, we touched on the telecom example. I don't know if every listener is going to think that's boring, but just in case some do, could you provide a more contemporary example of a company for whom they determined it was the right ecosystem to adopt? Some big companies out there who use Erlang who are not in the telecommunication industry. Some uh, of these examples are, for example, WhatsApp, Klarna, Riot Games, Discord, which is definitely not in the telecom industry, or Forza Football. Bleacher Report, I don't forget Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report migrated from Ruby to Elixir, and in doing so, they were able to reduce their, basically, server needs by around 90%. Wow. So just imagine you know, what that is doing for an environment in reduced energy consumption. Yeah, good point. Amazon might not be happy about it, but yeah, <laughs> it's... Uh... <laughs> Do you have any insight into what brought that 90% gain? So what what this reduction in server needs is the scalability properties you have of the beam. Every request coming in, you just spawn a new process. And a beam virtual machine you know, can handle millions of processes in parallel. And so all of a sudden, you know, you've got a million users all sending in a request. You can handle them with much less server capacity because all, all you do is you, know, you spawn new processes in each VM. You just need some large instances. And, and that's how you scale. How do you scale Ruby? Well, you, know, you fire off more instances and you scale horizontally. With the Beam, you scale both vertically as well as horizontally. And that's what we're seeing right here. And in terms of deployment, what does a production environment look like? How do we get our Erlang code out there? Nowadays, you can just create a release and upload it into your server or very popular technology using Docker or any kind of containerized uh, technology. And uh, how you orchestrate it, for example, with Kubernetes, that all works uh, just as well. I don't see any real difference from how you deploy any other application. During the build process, you create a release and uh, move that release into your uh, production environment and uh, start it up. But in terms of the way, uh, if I understood correctly, you described that when maybe one machine is running out of resources, it could fall over to another in the cluster. If I build a couple Docker containers, how do they synchronize and orchestrate? So when you have multiple Erlang uh, virtual machines, then you can set up a clustered environment. That's basically a configuration uh, parameter. Once the Erlang uh, uh, virtual machines are clustered, then they can communicate with each other with location transparency. So that part, uh, when you uh, design your application with uh, multiple instances in mind, you need to set up some kind of name discovery service. There's built-in ones in the, in the Erlang ecosystems. There are some libraries that work uh, really well, but the processes that uh, Francesco is talking about, uh, these small lightweight processes, you can name them and uh, communicate with them. It's completely transparent. So when you send a message from one processor or another, the virtual machine takes care of it and uh, delivers that message to the other process, regardless of where it is in a, uh, in a cluster. We often get questions, but why should we be using the service discovery mechanisms libraries in Erlang? They already exist in Kubernetes. And usually I think the answer there is, well, you remove a dependency towards Kubernetes. You still use Kubernetes for your orchestration, but you want to make sure that you know what you develop is actually not dependent on you know a particular tool. And that's why you, know, you use you know these mechanisms Gaborix is describing. And the other part is that not everybody is using Kubernetes. So no, exactly, exactly. Lots out there who don't depend on this quite big technology. It's a very useful one uh, if it's done correctly, but there are still lots and lots of 
applications where you just don't need that kind of scale. If you run out of one server, you can create another one. And to be honest, not everybody needs hundreds of servers to do their workload. If you can stop somewhere between low tens, then that is a really good candidate for some homegrown installment, for example, and frustration. I think I'll throw in Phoenix here, which is kind of a framework for your web APIs uh, written in Elixir. I think it's kind of the next generation, let's say, of Ruby on Rails. And back in 2016, if I remember correctly, they went in and managed to get 2 million TCP IP connections running on a single large instance on on Amazon. So uh, this is basically 2 million users which are able to connect to one single instance. You know, how many applications needs to handle, you know, 2 million simultaneous users. You know, and if you've got right. one which needs to handle 4 million users, yeah, you, you fire up a new instance and you're up at you know, 4 million connected users actually using your system in parallel. So it's often, you know, adding Kubernetes and yeah, adding, you know, dockerizing and everything is, is adding an overhead, which, you know, for many use cases is actually not necessary. Well, for many reasons, as soon as you get into some distributed computing, you have to accept you're going to live in a world where there will be failures. How do Beam and Elixir perform when they catch on fire? To quote Joe Armstrong, you need to build your systems with full tolerance in mind from day one. So you need at least two computers. You say catch fire, you know, Joe Armstrong says, you know, one of the two computers might be struck by lightning. And what you tend to do is you've got two of everything. You know, that's how you know, they achieve, you know, the telecom systems achieve five nines availability. You've got redundant power supplies, you've got redundant hardware, you've got redundant networks. And if one fails, you know, you've got your fall back to the other. It's a similar mindset when you're dealing with programs in the ecosystem, which may never fail. But what you need to replicate right here is states. And you'll copy your state and your data for full tolerance, and then you'll go in and you'll replicate it for uh, for scalability. So what that means is that, you know, if you're sending a request you know, to one particular server and that server goes down, requests get redirected to another server, which, which has a copy of the state and can pick up where, where the first server left off. You know. So that's one approach, which is very normal. But... That's on you know, losing the whole server. You then scale it down. You know, what happens if you lose just a single process? Uh, so you know, think of telephony server where every phone call which is ongoing is, is a process, is, is represented by a process. If there's a bug in your code or your state gets corrupted, you know, what you do is you cause your process to crash. And what you do is you can go in. You know, this crash is detected by a supervisor which goes in and recreates a process and tries to recreate the state of this process before the crash. And by recreating that state, hopefully if that state had gotten corrupt, you know, somewhere along the line, by recreating it, you know, retrieving the data from the original source, hopefully you know, this issue will be, have been addressed. And it's, it's called a supervision you know, structure, you know, where you create supervisors who monitor the workers and other supervisors and you know, the sole task is to go in and restart a process in case it fails. So you know, we usually refer to this as the let it crash approach, where you know, we let processes terminate or crash, but we don't ignore the crash. We actually go in and 
we handle bugs, but we handle them different than what you might be used to. And, and they're handled in a generic way by the supervisors. So again, it simplifies the code base and it makes it much, much easier you know, to go in and develop and manage in, in the long run. And Francesco mentioned a lot of really useful techniques that are provided you by Erlang, Elixir, the standard libraries around the programming ecosystem. But I'd like to highlight another one that is not unique to Erlang and uh, probably the most important one. Once you move away from a single instance model and you move into a concurrent model or something that uh, involves networking, you need to think about delivery guarantees because you can either have at least once or at most one delivery guarantees, but what you cannot have is exactly once delivery. And when you design your application with that, you need to implement usually idempotent messaging, which means that if you retry a message or retry an operation, then uh, it will have the same effect. So it will not uh, cause any side effects outside of the expected part. And when you build your application with that in mind, which is, which is just generic, how to design an application that is not a single instance, then you get an ecosystem that supports uh, the tooling around. Because it is not fair asking for Erlang to say that, okay, now we have messaging, we have processes, we have the supervisor tree, we have let it crash, but I cannot lose a message and the message only lives in memory and let the whole ecosystem solve it. You need to be able to retry uh, messages. You need to have a core that doesn't crash, that knows about what is going on. Either you outsource it to the user. For example, most web applications do that. For example, if something happens with your request, the user is uh, expected to press the refresh button. Or back in the telephony days, if something happened inside these uh, big telephony switches, the user was expected to redial. So this is not a completely new idea. Or you can create a core, for example, what the most popular web framework in uh, the Elixir Land Phoenix does, or uh, the Erlang library that it uses, Cowboy, uh, uses behind the scenes, is that it has a core part of the application that receives your HTTP request and then uh, creates a new process for that will handle that HTTP. If something happens during that request, then that process can crash, and uh, this core part will catch that and will serve you a 500. That is a really stable model because when you write your application, you don't need to care about uh, in the middle of, let's say, user credential lookups that what happens if you lose access to your uh, user's database. You just uh, handle it as a situation that you don't know what to do. You don't know what uh, what is the correct response at that time. So you let uh, the core say that, okay, this is a 500 uh, Let's try again later. And obviously, as you try to move some of these requirements back to a business requirement that has a different function for these, you can move that into a handled case where you don't let it crash, but assign a specific user function to that that case. And that's the ease of development in Erlang uh, that you can do. Because in other languages, you really don't want to let a a threat uh, uh, crash, for example. That is usually not ideal. So basically, yeah, we take care of our bugs, but we just you know, take care of them in a slightly different way to what you might be used to. Or what's a typical learning curve around that? We've touched upon a couple important ideas like thinking concurrently or the working with idempotent messaging. How long does it take for a seasoned uh, software engineer to adapt to these new ways of thinking? Ericsson did some studies, and I wish they had you know, published the results. But they did some studies back in the early 90s. And they, you know, for someone straight out of university, 
who's basically used to you know, switching across programming languages, they felt it took them about a month learning first airline and then OTP. And you know, they were productive within about a month versus someone who had been working with a particular technology. And this particular technology, it would, you know, so someone which was mu- a much more seasoned programmer, it would have taken them about three months to become fully productive. Now, obviously, you know, when we're talking about a junior versus a senior, you know, we're talking about different levels of productivity, which also explains the longer time. But I think a lot of the time of the three months got spent not so much about learning to think concurrently, but unlearning approaches and paradigms in other programming languages. And I think the team which this study was done on is the team which built GPRS, which was building GPRS back in the late 90s. I think it was 97, 98. And this is you know, still very much code which is in production today in Ericsson's 5G systems because you know, free GPRS became 3G, 4G, and today 5G. You mentioned OTP. I'm not sure if we've defined that yet. What is OTP? So OTP stands for Open Telecom Platform, uh, but uh, this abbreviation is no longer used uh, because it doesn't just contain the telecommunication part of the platform, but all the necessary building blocks. So usually I define it as uh, the standard library for Erlang. You know, I think we should never, ever, ever, you know, mention the T word in OTP. It was named at a time you know, when Erlang was not released as open source. And it was used internally within within Ericsson you know, to serve a particular purpose. But, you know, what I usually define OTP as, what OTP does is actually introduces a programming model, which, you know, makes your reasoning around systems, which is distributed, scalable, resilient, easy, and almost natural. So, and it does so by forcing you to architect a node. So a node is an instance of the beam running in a particular way and, you know, providing tools and middleware, which rely you to follow you know, these design principles. And when you do follow these design principles, different systems, which do very, very different things, are actually done and solved in a, it's done in a similar way. So they'll go in and hide the complexities you might find in these, the type of system you're developing. Uh, they hide the complexities by putting these tricky parts into reusable libraries. And these libraries will often handle all of these edge and borderline cases. So you, know, you don't need to think about them. So... What you as a developer need to think about and focus is the actual problem you're trying to solve and not you know, the accidental difficulties which are brought forward by you know, using maybe tools which are not adequate for the task you're trying to achieve. It's not only the standard library, but I'd like to second uh, what Francesco told about the libraries built on top of this. Uh, for example, Phoenix, if you are writing a web server in Elixir, then if you don't think about the concurrency and you just write uh, an implementation for each API call, for example, then you get it out of the box uh, from Phoenix. So there will be a very long way before you really need to start uh, building your own concurrent model. And by that time, probably you will get uh, quite confident in what you are doing and get familiar with this time. So when we are talking about a couple of months to get into this uh, system, you can read uh, many success stories where people who were familiar with, for example, Ruby, which is uh, more or less single-threaded, came into Elixir and they could write uh, applications which were highly concurrent uh, out of the box. Interesting. Makes sense. Well, to wind up, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your work at Erlang Solutions. For example, when you're onboarding new customers, I'm curious if 
That's because they've sought you out for your expertise after identifying that they want to move to Beam in this ecosystem, or if you need to evangelize the platform at all. So, yeah, I think most of our work doesn't so much consist in selling our expertise. It consists in convincing the customers that the ecosystem, Erlang or Elixir, are the right tools for the job. Most of our customers will come to us because at some point or another, they felt the pain points which you know, the ecosystem solves and pain points of scale and of resilience. So I think more than evangelizing, I think it's more kind of helping them assess if Erlang and Elixir are the right tools for the job. And we usually do that through a prototype or a proof of concept, which you then use for a go-no-go decision. And another leg that we stand on is, for example, our RabbitMQ services. So we do RabbitMQ consultancy. RabbitMQ is one of uh, these uh, very popular staple Erlang-based applications out there. I'm always surprised when I see it in uh, companies where they never heard about Erlang before. They just run it and uh, it does it, uh, what it does and until it doesn't and they come to us to help us solve it. <laughs> And our expertise in Erlang come in really handy because it's a complex system. Sometimes you really need to understand what's going behind the scenes and uh, how to fine tune it. And this is what we do best. And are there any good rules of thumb for an enterprise who's thinking this might be the right choice for them? So the right approach is always start off small. Start off by you know going in and thinking what your pain points are. Are you having you know, stability issues? Is your operational team you know, being woken up in the middle of the night? Are you having, because you know, the system's crashing and failing, are you having issues handling increase in requests and demands you know, for your services? If those two are, are, are usually the cases, then it's well worth you know, spending some time you know, working on a prototype. So we're talking you know, 30, 40 person days in addressing one of the pain points you're feeling and seeing if it actually addresses and gives you the solution you're hoping for. So you know, this is usually how we approach it. And I think the rules of thumb is you know, to think, you know, is what I'm trying to do scalable? Does it have to be resilient? And in many cases, even if it doesn't have to be scalable or resilient, is, are we dealing with endpoints here? Are we dealing with a truly kind of concurrent system which we're implementing? And if so, it, it's, it's very well worth exploring. I think there are many case studies out there. There are many conference talks available on YouTube and you know, which you know, showcase how Erlang and Elixir have been used in, well, not only the telco space, but in fintech, in healthcare, in IoT, messaging. Yeah, there are many, many verticals out there. And they will help you also assess if it's the right tool for the job, even before you go in and, and start your proof of concept. And can we leave listeners with any good links or a place to go to learn more? I would like to recommend, you know, go in and look at all of the Elixir conference talks, all of the Code Beam conference talks. They've got YouTube channels. There's a lot of, you know, talks which have come even during the pandemic, which have been done virtually. There is the Elixir website. It has some excellent tutorials and links to tutorials on how to get started. There's also you know, the Erlang.org website as well which has been up and running now for almost you know, 23, 24 years. And finally, also the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, which is well worth mentioning, earlyf.org, which is there you know, to basically help companies adopt Beam technologies and technologies in the Erlang Ecosystem. 
Very cool. We'll try and put some of those links in the show notes for listeners to follow up. Francesco and Gabor, thank you both so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having us.